This is a podcast from the Pathologies of Solitude project at Queen Mary, University of London. It's one of a series looking at places and experiences of solitude and how these have changed over the centuries. Each podcast has been curated by a member of the project research team and draws on contributions from a wide network of collaborators. I'm Heta House, and I'm part of that wider network. This is episode two, The Garden. How vainly men themselves amaze to win the palm, the oak, or bays, and their uncessant labours see crowned from some single herb or tree, whose short and narrow verged shade does prudently their toils upbraid, while all flowers and all trees do close to weave the garlands of repose. Fair quiet, I have found thee here, and innocence, thy sister dear. Mistaken long, I sought you then in busy companies of men. Your sacred plants, if here below, only among the plants will grow. Society is all but rude to this delicious solitude. That was part of Andrew Marvell's poem, The Garden, published in 1681. We're recording this podcast series during the lockdown for coronavirus. In London, where I live, there's something of a divide between people who have access to a garden and those who don't. Those of us without outside space fantasise about leisurely days spent with the grass under our feet, but the reality is that many of the city's green spaces are crowded and must be enjoyed without pause for rest as benches are roped off and suspected sunbathers are moved along. James Morland is a researcher with the Pathologies of Solitude project and curator of this episode on gardens. James, in the first episode of this series, you talked about the idea of the garden as a place where spiritual solitude could be found, especially in the long 18th century. What else do gardens have to do with the history of solitude? Yeah, so as we were talking about in the Sanctum podcast, there's that long and extended history of gardens really being related to religious solitary experience. But I think there's also kind of a long history of the garden as a place for different versions of solitude to be realised outside of the larger religious context. We've heard from Marvell's The Garden, which is, again, a very religious-inspired garden. On that religious slant, you have gardens in monasteries, but from a medical slant, you can be alone within a physic garden. There's also plenty of contemporary examples of that too. You know, it's not just a historical phenomenon. I've been reading Derek Jarman's Modern Nature and really kind of connecting to his garden through my kind of stay-at-home experience, where his solitary gardens at Prospect Cottage in Kent, kind of a prime example of queer solitary space away from society. And he has a really wonderful image where looking at the shingle heavy with dew and sparkling in the dawn and says that Vermeer dipped his brush in such iridescent solitude, which I think is a really delicious image of thinking about that whole history of depicting solitude through different avenues. And they often always comes back to the garden. So I guess kind of what I'm trying to get at is that the history of gardens and solitude through kind of both 
writing and also the experience in person often overlap and kind of give you an insight into really many different forms of solitude. That Derek Jarman garden is definitely on my to visit list when lockdown is over. Are there sort of particular gardens and representations of gardens, sort of examples that pop out for you? Yeah, I think that gardens can kind of really show you just how varied experiences of solitude have been across history. You know, for example, in ancient Greece, you've got Epicurus's philosophical garden where he advocates a move away from society and conversation with friends. In the 17th century, you've got poetry reflecting on the Garden of Eden and what it meant to be away from society and communing with God. In the 18th century, you've got purpose-built hermitages and grottos, which evoke ideas of solitary philosophical reflection in the middle of the Enlightenment. So gardens, you know, whether they're presented metaphorically or poetically or physical real-life ones, I think can give us a real snapshot into thinking about solitude in different periods of history. Such was that happy garden state while man there walked without a mate. After a place so pure and sweet, what other help could yet be meet? But t'was beyond a mortal's share to wander solitary there. Two paradises twere in one, to live in paradise alone. How well the skilful gardener drew of flowers and herbs this dial new, where from above the milder sun does through a fragrant zodiac run, and as it works the industrious bee computes its time as well as we. How could such sweet and wholesome hours be reckoned but with herbs and flowers? I'm joined now by Laura Seymour from Birkbeck University, who's an expert in Marvell and gardens um, in his writings. So, Laura, can I ask you, first of all, we've been hearing little excerpts from Marvell's poem, The Garden, throughout this episode. What does Marvell mean by solitude in this poem? Marvell represents this poem as being essentially about the joys of solitude, but I think it's more complicated than that. So Marvell says in this poem that he's escaped from busy companies of men. And at the end of the second stanza, he says that society is all but rude to this delicious solitude. Um, so he's suggesting that experiencing solitude is more refined than being in society. Um, but I think that actually solitude in this poem is more about opening the possibility for multiple engagements with other beings. And ultimately, I think there is an appreciation of the gardener also who created the garden that he's in. Do you think Marvell's kind of idea about solitude, which, as you said there, often seems to be more about connectivity, is quite unique or is it representative of other 17th century writers thinking about solitude at the time? In many ways it is, yeah. So he does draw on earlier ideas of solitude. So he wrote, for example, he wrote The Garden in English, but he also wrote a Latin version of the same poem called Hortus. And in the Latin version, he refers to sana otia, which I guess we could translate as healthy leisure. And the word sanus also has connotations of, you know, um, wholeness and sanity and reasonableness. And so I think this draws on quite prevalent ideas at the time of, you know, solitude being a positive and a health-giving thing for him in the garden, or time spent in a garden at least is healthy. 
both for his physical health and his mental health. So he's eating nourishing fruits, but he's also calmly recuperating, I think, what we would now call his, his mental health in the garden. But I think Marvell often makes a few changes to these ideas. So, for example, um, in terms of representing the garden as the Garden of Eden, Marvell represents it as a vastly improved Eden because it's, it's like Eden where Adam wandered alone before Eve came along. So he says, such was that happy garden state where man there walked without a mate. And then um, he also says that being in paradise alone is two paradises in one. <laughs> yes, I was really struck by that, because as you say, garden as paradise is quite a relatively straightforward um, association, but Marvell's paradise is very much an, a paradise without Eve, so kind of before Eve came and spoiled everything. So on the one hand, as you say, this sort of solitary bliss where he's on his own. But then on the other hand, you've got... Um, Marvel populating this imagined garden with references to classical literature, with quite sensuous, maybe even erotic plants and fruits that sort of pop out at him. Um, and it starts to feel almost quite crowded. So what, what's going on with that tension there? For Marvel, maybe Adam's fall comes through Eve, but it doesn't come through eating the apple. It comes much earlier. It comes when Eve just arrives in the garden, just by being there. She takes away some of Adam's paradise because she takes away his solitude. And I think this insistence on, you know, pushing everyone away and saying, get out of my garden, um, is partly generic. So quite a lot of pastoral poems are about male narrators sort of emphasising how much they love solitude because it's a way of showing that they're self-sufficient and they have a balanced, well-framed mind and they're self-controlled. So I think rejecting female company is partly generic. But as you've said, he then does sort of crowd his garden so he's got, as you mentioned, this sort of erotic or aesthetic or nourishing engagement with the fruits in the garden. They're sort of pressing themselves into his hands and he describes the grapes as um, crushing against his mouth to make wine. And then ultimately at the end of the poem, he sort of comes to appreciate the gardener who's made the garden. And there are various personifications as well. So he, he says, fair quiet have I found thee here, and innocence thy sister dear. Um, so he sort of welcomes these abstractions into the garden. But I think it's significant that they're personifications of absence. So he welcomes quiet into the garden. But really quiet is, you know, the personification of no one being there. <laughs> so maybe that's why she's so welcome. Yes, absolutely. And sort of interesting that the language used is so, well, I found it to be, you know, quite erotic sort of it felt quite sexy to me as a poem a garden's usually this sexy in the 17th century <laughs> <laughs> I think they can be I think reading Marvell's poem upon Appleton House is quite interesting in that poem the sort of sexy threat comes from lesbian nuns in their secluded nunnery and the garden is kind of an escape from that. The garden is an escape into solitude, away from, you know, the worldly pleasures of the nuns in their enclosed space. So it's interesting that in this poem, it's, it's going on in the garden, I think. It's interesting in terms of Marvell's poetry. There's been a lot of speculation, obviously, about desire in Marvell's writing and in his life. Is there a sense in which we can read the garden in this poem as a space where one can imagine or entertain a different kind of desire outside of the sort of 17th century norm? I think so, yeah. So um, Matthew Augustine has said that Marvell is seeking in his solitude an idiosyncratic liberty, and particularly 
in the sense that it provided escape from the kind of political furores and the personal attacks on Marvel that were going on at the time. So, you know, sometimes things got quite personal when people were accusing Marvel of being John Milton's lover, for example. I think we can definitely read desire in Marvel's poems about gardens and mowers as queer. So a lot of the source texts for the garden are classical texts about gay love. But I think that um, rather than reading, you know, queerness as the one, or homosexuality as the one solution to how Marvell experiences his solitude, I think, I think maybe it's useful to preserve the ambiguity and the multi-strandedness of his solitudes. One really strong desire that he expresses in this poem is the desire to be alone. And also um, some authors like Paul Hammond think that, you know, one of the key desires in these pastoral poems by Marvell are the speaker's, is the speaker's desire for his own self. So, you know, he, he narcissistically seeks his own reflection in the water features of gardens and parks. And um, in Damon the Mower, this pastoral poem about a mower, Damon checks himself out in the reflective surface of his scythe. I love that image of Damon the Mower checking himself out in his scythe. I'm Hessa Howes and I'm here with James Morland, the creator of this podcast episode, and we're talking about gardens and solitude. Why is it that a garden is different from, say, being out in the wilderness or the countryside? Is there something sort of specific to do with the garden being man-made? Yeah, I think it's kind of really thinking about the garden as a contained and a designed space that often leads to a very different type of solitude than say, in the wilderness. And the way that it's made certainly affects the way that solitude is presented within it. So, you know, if you take the Garden of Eden as a prime example, that's divine-made rather than man-made, but produces a divinely inspired reflection on solitude throughout the ages, and also has edges to be cast out of, thinking of temptation. But there's also that longer history of you know, specifically designed gardens, such as Kew Gardens, where it was initially built as a place of conversation for the mind, where solitude and silence should remain, according to the young poet Thomas Chatterton, who published a poem just after it was opened in 1770. But he also laments that it ultimately led to to fulfil the desires of lust and desire, with its solitary and hidden spaces. So I think what's really key there is that these gardens are designed for you to experience a certain type of solitude. Whether you actually do it or not is, you know, up to you. So there's a sense of potential then in these gardens, so a chance to have a conversation with one's own thoughts or even with the divine, but there's also a sense of real risk. Yeah, I think there's always that danger that these gardens won't be used for what they're designed for. So in the case of Kew Gardens, Thomas Chatterton laments that it's because its solitary spaces have led to lust and desire rather than, you know, those conversations of the mind that it's, you know, failed in its purpose. And the same goes for the religious aspects of conversing with the divine in these gardens. Who knows where your mind and contemplations are going to end up if you're left alone. So, you know, as we're always talking about with solitude, it's an individual experience. And for every individual, your experience of a garden can go either way. So in terms of sort of the history of gardens and solitude, many of these gardens then 
are actually designed around different kinds of solitude, different kinds of being alone that people are seeking. Yeah, and I think the the really key word there is the design element. You know, whether these gardens are real or metaphorical, they've always been designed to evoke a certain sense of solitude. You know, we've we've had Marvell's poem, The Garden, that is a design of a garden from his own thought process. So those poetic or metaphorical gardens give you a chance to experience that design space without having access to it, which many through the 17th and 18th century wouldn't have been able to. So gardens, whether they're metaphorical or real-life ones, can kind of give you a real experience of different needs of solitude in different periods of history. And are there some real gardens that are sort of, we can tell, are directly inspired by poetic or metaphorical gardens? Is there any sort of relationship there in terms of the design? You know, oh, I might want to design a, you know, a garden like Marvell's poem, for example. Yeah, I think a really interesting example um, is the garden at Sissinghurst Castle, actually. It's a National Trust property. I've always wanted to visit that. I know, me too. I'm just dreaming of it um, in the stay-at-home order. <laughs> um, but that was that's a garden created by the poet and writer Vita Sackville-West, who was known for her dislike of visitors and her love of solitude. And that can really be paired with her epic poem entitled Solitude, which includes many references to gardens, countryside and, you know, complex matters of sexuality that happen within them. Um, So I think there's kind of real crossovers um, of those literary examples of gardens and solitude and spaces that you can experience them at the same time. Um, So I would very much like to go with you to Prospect Cottage and Sissinghurst Castle uh, with our books in hand uh, to both experience the literary and physical solitude together. Oh yes, I'd love to be wandering about in a garden right now, drifting past banks of lavender, listening to the bees. One of the best examples of a 17th century garden is at Ham House on the Thames, just south of Richmond, and we invited head gardener Rosie Files to summon it for us. Today it smells like the Mediterranean because the lavender is starting to have very large buds and about to pop. The entrance is quite grand, right on the River Thames, and at the moment we're keeping the grass a bit long so it doesn't look quite as sharp as it might but it looks very uh, naturalistic and uh, meadowy. There's a number of sort of areas of the garden that people can wander into. The first is the cherry garden. If you walk through that quite intimate space you're then on to the south terrace which stretches out across a very large area we call the Platz, which is surrounded with gravel and then out to the wilderness which is a 17th century artificial creation of countryside. The wilderness area actually in size takes up approximately about a quarter of the garden space. It's the most authentic area of the garden we have today. It was rest- or it be- began to be restored in the mid-1970s. It was a 
a, a sort of flattening of everything that was there and a replanting to a plan dating from the 1680s. So we have 16 compartments in there. They have hedges made of hornbeam. The hedges are intentionally the height of an average person so that you can peep over the hedges to look in to see what's going on. 16 compartments, eight of them are enclosed and they enclose very large shrubs all shaped as domes and four compartments have summer houses in where people would go and spend some time especially if it was raining or too hot and those compartments with summer houses in we believe had mechanical structures in them so that the summer houses could move around so if you were t in too much sun or the rain was getting in you had a handle that you could twist and turn and the compartment would move around. The thing about the, the wilderness as an area is that depending on, on where you are in it and how you use it, it can feel like a massive expanse and quite wild or it can feel very, very intimate and private and that's how we see people using it today. So when the garden is open on a busy spring weekend, you'll see families using it for the most amazing games of hide and seek. And then at the other end of it, you'll see people sitting on their own, perhaps in a deck chair, perhaps in a summer house, reading. And literally I could, I could be, you know, walking three hours and then come back in and the person is still in the same position, still on their own. I think silence in a garden is an, an interesting concept because most people wouldn't want complete silence in a garden. You'd want to hear the soundtrack of nature while you're there. One of the things during lockdown that we've really noticed is that nature's volume has turned, been sort of turned right up in our senses. The blackbirds are phenomenal. So if I visit a garden, I'd, I'd want to hear nature and I'd want to hear birdsong, but I wouldn't want to hear transport, emergency services, other people's radios. I think it's interesting idea what the ideal soundscape in a garden would be. I have a feeling you'd want your, the company of nature but not the company of human beings. I think in a, in a garden of the size of Ham House Garden it would have been um, a fairly crowded gardening estate. You would have had a group of weeding women who literally all they did was weed gravel, then you'd have had a troop of male gardeners who took on the slightly more interesting jobs. And when you think about large pots with beautiful specimens of standard trees in, and you think they would have had to move those around the garden according to where the lady of the house wanted to see that shrub in blossom or in flower, you realise that actually you need three or four people to move a pot like that. So there was a lot of teamwork going on. I think in terms of the solitary gardener, I think that might be a bit more of a modern, a modern invention. And I think it's 
it, it links to the idea that gardens can be about well-being as well as about enjoyment or the one-off experience and that spending time nurturing and watching something grow as a result of your timely interventions is a very reassuring thing in a, at times in a difficult world. Rosie Files, head gardener at Ham House. It's easy to forget that armies of people required to create and maintain a solitary, blissful garden. Not so blissful, perhaps, for the women in the team of perpetual weeders. Stephen Bending is a senior lecturer in English at the University of Southampton, and he's written a book about gardens in the 18th and 19th centuries. He says that when we think about gardens in this period, it's tempting to focus on the idea of design, but that this can often exclude women and how they experience gardens and solitude. I asked him about particular elements in gardens of that time that were especially focused on solitude. And I was particularly interested in something I spoke about with James earlier in this episode. The structures, some quite elaborate, that were sometimes built in landscape gardens to evoke the hermits of the past. Hermitages are created from probably early in the 18th century through to the end of the century. Most famously, perhaps, would be Queen Caroline's Hermitage at Richmond Gardens in London. Around the same kind of time, the poet William Shenstone is creating his in the Midlands in a place called Delisos. Alongside that, you have one of my women gardeners, Henrietta Knight, Lady Luxborough, who creates a hermitage but then doesn't go into it. And the reason she doesn't tend to go into it, it highlights the problem of the, these kinds of structures in that they tend to be fairly elaborate public statements about solitude rather than places in which she might be alone. It's the last place that she wants to be. Solitude becomes devastating for her in some ways and is aligned with loneliness. So... Yes, there are these features in gardens. We might think about wildernesses too. They crop up, of course, famously in things like Jane Austen's Mansfield Park. Again, a sort of nod towards an idea of solitude. But the thing that interests me and I think is more important is the way in which these garden spaces are used by people when they are alone or when they're thinking about solitude. In terms of them thinking about solitude, we've been talking a lot on this podcast series about are there particular kinds of solitude in particular time periods? And I'm wondering, you kind of talked about this sort of mini craze for hermitages. Are these kinds of gardens representative of a particular type of thinking about solitude that's specific to the 18th century? Or can we draw more sort of broad strokes between, you know, solitude as a tame at any time in any garden? As you work your way through people writing about their experience of solitude, there, there are uh, particular aspects of it, I suppose, which one would say are peculiar to the 18th century but that's that's largely because I think solitude is so much bound up with the society around it that what marks out solitude is the absence of the city a sense of how you should behave in relation to the modern world around you and so on so it comes with a whole series of expectations about uh, modes of behavior I should be thinking of God while I sit in contemplation alone would be one version of, of things Another version is that it's actually miserable, that solitude is a place where you are being punished one way or another. 
Yeah, I was just wondering if that's the kind of, you mentioned earlier, Henrietta feeling sort of the desolation of loneliness. Is that the kind of loneliness she was feeling or is that different? Yeah, no, I think it is. I mean, I think there's there's this sort of huge weight that gets put on you when you recognise this notion of solitude. There's a huge kind of literary culture. So to come back to your point about, is it different in the 18th century? I think a lot of 18th century thinking about solitude draws on all sorts of writing from long before the, the 18th century whether it's people like Cowley uh, writing on solitude in the 17th century or actually back to a, a whole series of classical sources. And there's that expectation that solitude should be good for you and the weight of that can be devastating. So in Henrietta Knight's case, why is she in solitude? Why is she alone? Well, it's because she's said to have had an affair with a young tutor of a, of a friend of hers. She's forced into rural retirement where she doesn't want to be. What comes with that is that sense of, I should behave in a certain kind of way, people will think about me in a certain kind of way, and I hate this. Is the solitary garden different for women, do you think, in the 18th century? I mean, you've mentioned one quite particular context of sort of being almost sort of shunted off into retirement after having an affair. I'm sure there's all kinds of different experiences of solitude in the garden, but how far are they gendered? I think they're incredibly gendered, actually, because, I mean, in part because gardens are these odd spaces which are, one might see them in terms of retirement. So there's a version of things that says, why are women in these spaces? Well, it's when they're away from the city. So there's a kind of cyclical version of retirement that says well-to-do women are in London in the winter, they're in their country estates in the summer. And that language of retirement, which is actually very close to a language of solitude in all sorts of ways, assumes again that you should be behaving in a pious moral way. But alongside that, there's an entirely different version of retirement for women, which is, again, a a bit like the the Henrietta Knight thing, which is why are you in the country to hide? And gardens are these also these sort of extremely sexualized spaces. And so for women, that that causes a particular kind of problem. There's a sort of easy, lazy eroticizing of garden spaces, uh, which is done by men. And one of the problems is what do you do with that if you're a woman? And part of what you do, I think, is try to resist it with a language of solitude aligned with goodly thoughts, piety and so on. So are there ways that women can sort of, or have you found ways in which women are reconfiguring or overturning those traditional ideas of solitude or the sexualised garden or whatever it might be through their own either experience of gardens or design of gardens? Or do you think they feel quite penned in by those ideas? I think it depends on which woman you're talking about. You know, it's perfectly possible for women to claim the language of solitude for themselves. I think it, I think it has a, a, a weight that it doesn't have in the same way for men necessarily. And I think they frequently do feel framed by the kind of cultural weight of solitude as an idea. That said, it can also be this kind of liberating experience of being able to do what you want away from other people. I think the other side of it, the more sort of positive side of it, is that it becomes a language which uh, women letter writers use to each other. And so on the one hand, solitude, yes, is aligned with being alone. On the other, actually most women's letters are going to be written from solitude. Uh, They're more likely to be written when you're in the country than when you're busy in town and where you're face-to-face with your friends. So that solitude in that sense becomes the opportunity for sociability, although sociability are to remove. And do you think we've been sort of thinking a bit in this podcast about the difference between literary representation um, of gardens, sort of metaphorical gardens or imagined gardens and actual sort of lived 
gardens. Do you think there's a difference between how solitude is represented in in literature for women and how they actually experienced it themselves? I mean, I think you've kind of already touched on this actually in terms of the sort of these sort of idealizations or tropes and then sort of real experience. But I wondered if there was any more that you wanted to say about that. The only thing I'd really add to that is that it's tempting to make a distinction between the you know the literary and the lived, and that you know that's absolutely right. At the same time, I think that a lot of those literary tropes are themselves lived. It's what's in people's heads. They, they it comes to women very quickly that they're you know there are they're articulate, well-read women, and these are the tropes that are in their mind when they find themselves alone in gardens. What should I be in relation to them? Is is the kind of question that's always raised, and it's played around with constantly in letters between women written from their country estates. I think that's such a good point. And one thing that comes up in your book that's quite important as well is an idea of of class. I tend to think of gardening during this time period as quite reserved for the privileged, people with a bit more money and a bit more time. Does that tend to be the case or have you found examples of less well-to-do women who are involved either in garden design or experience of gardens? You're absolutely right. Gardens are inevitably, if they're of any scale, it means a lot of money and it means taking land out of productive use. The women gardeners I found on the whole are wealthy women and they tend, of course, to be either, well, they tend to be single, whether that's widowed, separated and so on, because otherwise the estate is largely in the hands of men. So women gardeners in that sense tend to be something of a quirk. They tend to be, if not aristocratic, at least very well healed. That said... Yes, that book ends with an example of a governess who is working in the garden that's not her own, but that feels like her own. And she shares many of the kind of ideas about solitude that we'd find with aristocratic and well-to-do women throughout the 18th century. So someone like Ellen Wheaton, writing uh, in the early years of the 19th century, acutely aware of being alone in the garden, acutely aware of how she might transform uh, uh, an outdoor space in her own image, but also, of course, how other women might then claim that space for themselves at at her expense. And alongside that, of course, what we the, the thing that we I think it will now be impossible to get at is gardens are full of women, but most of those women are poor. They're doing things like weeding, lots of kind of manual labour of one kind or another. It seems to me that there are experiences there of solitude, of shaping spaces on a small scale, whether that's a flower bed or something, you know, something larger, that we'll just never be able to get at. We tend to kind of blot out those lower class and working women because we simply don't have access to how they're thinking and how they're feeling, because the records of those women are written largely by men, largely by those in the kind of professional and upper classes, and they have no real interest in the experience of those of those women. Stephen Bending. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Spaces of Solitude. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Pathologies of Solitude Project, generously supported by the Wellcome Trust and hosted by Queen Mary University of London. It was presented by me, Hetta Howes, and produced by Natalie Steed. To hear the rest of the Places of Solitude series, and discover more about our work, search for Solitude's Queen Mary.